Nearly $790 million. That's the price of knowingly airing false facts and not retracting them, not correcting them. And actually, that's the price of blurring the line between what is supposed to be journalism and what is media. Because, I mean, you know, to air is human, right? Yeah. To correct it is journalism. And everything else perhaps is media, but it's not journalism. Journalists should be quick to correct their errors, and they should be so careful. Even opinion writers, not our, our opinion broadcasters um, and, and on-air personalities like the ones we've discussed about um, at Fox. Right. And for you to bring up Cronkite, I think, is critical to this point. He was the most trusted man in America. Yeah. Trusted journalist, the most trusted man. Why do you, why do you make that distinction? Well, at different newspapers around the country um, and just said, look, there's this amazing new weapon that's becoming quite successful. It's silencing coverage of the civil rights movement. It feels as though um, the very existence of the New York Times is going to be threatened, according to the executive editor of the day. So this was a big deal and very frightening. Oh, so the weapon being the lawsuit, the defamation lawsuit. Um, and it was an astonishing decision um, that that really was seismic in nature, um, that that brought libel law under the purview of the First Amendment and gave drastic freedoms um, to the press. Um, and Justice Brennan, of course, who wrote the majority uh, opinion for the court, um, said the press needs breathing room. Um, of the five elements of libel, fault can be the most um, confusing. And so the case, New York Times versus Sullivan, which was decided in 1964, set up a, a standard of fault called actual malice, where you have to really get to the heart in your fact finding um, within the, the discovery stage and, and during a libel trial. Did the reporter write something knowing it was false, with knowledge of falsity, right? You wrote something knowing it was wrong. You broadcast something knowing it was wrong. Or you should have known it. And that should have known it part is called, did you act with reckless disregard for the truth? So, Did you know that there are at least two conservative justices in the current U.S. Supreme Court who want to make it easier for plaintiffs to win defamation lawsuits against news media and journalists? Well, as you know, Dominion's case against Fox News settled, so the Supreme Court won't get its hands on this case. But if the U.S. Supreme Court does get to decide on a similar defamation case, and in so doing loosens the standards for proving defamation, then the new standard could become a double-edged sword for conservatives. On the one side, it would make it much easier for companies like Dominion to sue conservative news media like Fox News. But on the other side, it would make it much easier for conservatives, such as Donald Trump, to sue and win defamation cases against news media like CNN. Hey there, news peelers. Today is April 28, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. 
Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. According to the New York Times, $787,500,000 is the largest defamation lawsuit settlement in our history. And as far as the New York Times is concerned, the payment of this amount in and of itself is an admission, or perhaps an acknowledgement, of wrongdoing by Fox News. But that's the New York Times' point of view, not Fox's. Interestingly, Fox did acknowledge the judge's findings that Fox News had broadcast false claims, and it stated that the settlement reflects its, quote, continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards, unquote. The highest journalistic standards. Hmm. In this episode, Dr. Amy Edmondson tells us what those high standards of journalism are. This matters because it helps us gain a broader perspective on this lawsuit. And this matters because Fox is facing a dozen other lawsuits, including one for $2.7 billion by Smartmatic USA, which is a voting machine company with defamation claims similar to Dominion's. One newsworthy fallout from Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox News is the airing of Fox's dirty laundry, such as Mr. Tucker Carlson's text messages, most of which were highly offensive, many about women and also toward Fox's executives. Of course, we all know that he was ousted this week from Fox News because of the content of those messages. But don't feel so badly for him. According to the Wall Street Journal, which is also owned by Rupert Murdoch's news empire, Mr. Carlson will be paid for the rest of his contract at a rate of about $20 million a year. But here's an enigma, at least to me. I used to practice law and represented large companies. So from my litigation experience, I can't fathom why Fox's lawyers hadn't shown Mr. Carlson's redacted and highly offensive messages to Fox's executives until, until the eve of trial. Who knows? At the end, this is a distraction from what we really want to talk about here. And that's the history and impact of defamation on journalism, or in the case of cable news, media. To better understand this history, I spoke with Dr. Edmondson, who's a professor in media law and journalism history with a particular focus on civil rights-related libel law, critical race theory, and free expression. She also teaches data journalism using the techniques of investigative reporters and editors. She's the Director for Graduate Studies at E.W. Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University and also the Acting Associate Dean for Graduate Studies, Research and Creative Activity at Scripps College of Communication. She's the author of the following book, In Sullivan's Shadow, The Use and Abuse of Libel Law During the Long Civil Rights Struggle, which we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Edmondson and her extensive research and publications, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, 
Stay with me as Dr. Edmondson and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Edmondson, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start with the basics here. What is defamation? Um, yes, this is, uh, first of all, first of all, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be here. But um, defamation in American law is really complex, but it's the notion that um, a statement was communicated that is not only false, but defames someone in their community. Um, there must be a showing of fault, which is really pretty complex um, since our landmark decision in 1964, which we're going to talk about um, quite a bit today, I have a feeling. Yeah. And and there have to be there needs to be a showing of damages. Um, so there's a lot to it, and it's it can be really complex for the average. Um, um, person to to really understand what this is, even when we're talking about basics. That that does sound complicated, especially the part when you mention fault. That that's almost like intent. Uh, we'll talk about it in a moment. So, but before we get into more of this, how is defamation different than say like libel or slander? You almost always see them like being used interchangeably. Right. Well, of course, slander is going to be um, the spoken word broadcast is what you might think of, but but mm -hmm. oral communication and libel would be the written word. And so for the purposes um, of this conversation, let's just keep it with libel. Now, you can defame someone and it not be libelous legally in the United States um, for some reasons we're going to talk about um, today as well. And and I think, you know, as journalists, we write about people all the time who might not want us to write about them or, or, or report on them, and they may feel defamed in their community, but it might not and is likely not going to be libelous according to American law. Okay, <laughs> that is getting complex. Uh, now that we discussed this basics of defamation, which are really not basic at all, let's talk about it. Maybe it's helpful to talk about it in the context of Dominion's lawsuit against Fox News. Had the trial moved forward not been settled, what are your thoughts about the potential legal defenses that Fox News might have used. And we can specifically discuss this, as I share with you in the in a prior communication, in the context of a Wall Street Journal opinion piece that was written by uh, Mr. Uh, Bill Barr, our former attorney general. He suggested three defenses, and we'll just go through them one by one. We don't need to read the article. The first one is this, Dr. Edmondson. It's not defamation when a news anchor reports statements by others that turn out to be false. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a good you know, defense? It it is not widely accepted in U.S. courts. Um, oh, not accepted. Okay, right. Um, it's called it's the notion of neutral reportage. That means that we as journalists are the the neutral conduit through which something comes. Um, we quote someone, we interview someone. It comes through us, the journalist, and and goes out the other side, right? And the idea that, and I did this, I was a reporter for about a dozen years um, in newspapers in three different states. And I would, when I was getting information, getting quotes, um, speaking to neutral reportage, if mm -hmm. someone 
someone said something that I felt was false and defamatory, I would take a close look and probably not include that in my reporting unless it was just so incredibly newsworthy um, that I couldn't not do it. And before I would- By newsworthy, you mean just the fact that that person or institution made that statement. Right. Yeah. And so it could be that I would say, oh, well, that's libelous what came out of that person's mouth. I'm not going to report it. Or if I do report it, I need to make sure that at the same time, I have the other person lined up who is being defamed, um, yeah. who is being libeled, so that I can immediately go from, here's a statement that someone made that's probably false and defamatory, comes through me, what's the response um, from the receiver? And to me, that is an ethical decision. As a journalist, if I behave ethically and give both sides or all sides of that story out equal time as much as possible um, at the same time for the same viewer or reader, if I behave ethically and give that balance, I'm safer legally. Yeah. Um, so you would not be reporting that potentially libel statement as a statement of fact. You would couch it in a statement that's made for by someone as being newsworthy or that you would create a conversation. Here's the opposing side. I see. How about the yeah. second point that Mr. Barr made in his uh, in his opinion piece uh, being that a potential defense for Fox News would have been that its news anchors were just given their opinions uh, and that defamation only applies to statements of facts. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So the first, uh, the first amendment absolutely protects pure opinion. This is a U.S. Supreme Court decision out of the state of Ohio. There um, you go, Ohio. Where a, um, uh, a high school wrestling coach um, was involved in a libel suit against a local newspaper, and it, the idea was the wrestling coach um, sued a sports writer for libel. Um, uh, for libel. And it was a case that wound through the courts for about 15 years. Wow. That brought, yeah. That brought us the Supreme Court decision in the 1990s that said pure opinion is protected by the First Amendment. However, there's a huge caveat. And this case is also pretty complex. If you insert a false fact into your opinion broadcast or your opinion piece, your editorial, you could be successfully sued for libel. For example, and I tell my students this in the oh. media class that I teach, they could say, did you know that Dr. Edmondson is a crappy teacher? She's boring. That is a, an opinion. Yeah. Right? But if you say, gosh, Dr. Edmondson, she does an awful job in the classroom. She's not very smart. And did you know she scored a 200 on the SAT? You just inserted a false fact that's provable, right? Provably true or false, bring forth the I see, I see. Right? So that is something that did not protect a sports writer um, covering high school wrestling in the state of Ohio, and the newspaper had to pay up. For our audience, everything I've read about Dr. Edmondson, um, none of her students say that about her. So, <laughs> <laughs> so those were just examples, hypotheticals, as we say in law school. Okay. Uh, the third potential defense by Fox News, uh, as Mr. Barr uh, suggested, could have been that even if its statements of fact were false, unless it can be proven that Fox News anchors and executives knew, knew that those statements were false, 
or seriously doubted their truth, then there's no problem at all. That kind of goes to that fault area, doesn't it, that you were saying? Exactly what, yeah. what I was about to say. Um, of the five elements of libel, fault can be the most um, confusing. And so the case, New York Times versus Sullivan, which was decided in 1964, set up a, a standard of fault called actual malice, where you have to really get to the heart in your fact finding um, within the, the discovery stage and, and during a libel trial. Did the reporter write something knowing it was false, with knowledge of falsity, right? You wrote something knowing it was wrong. You broadcast something knowing it was wrong. Or you should have known it. And that should have known it part is called, did you act with reckless disregard for the truth? So knowledge of falsity and or reckless disregard for the truth. And if that standard of fault, actual malice is met, um, it's libelous. Now, that's not for all plaintiffs. Um, there is a, a lesser or easier standard of fault called negligence that private citizen plaintiffs would have to um, prove that um, a journalist um, failed to exercise um, care. It's it's almost like when you think of negligence, where let's say you roll through a stop sign and you get in a wreck you failed to stop at the stop sign. And so that would be negligent within a car accident context. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a failure to recognize that care. Now, actual malice is much difficult, much more difficult um, to prove because you have to get into the mind of the journalist and go, did they act with a knowledge of falsity or with reckless disregard for the truth? And that is not easy to prove. The thing I about bet. It, sure. And and so a company like false uh, a fox as well as public officials and public figures have a higher standard of fault as plaintiffs that they must prove that the reporter the journalist the speaker acted with actual malice it's hard I to just do. i just in the minute we have left i just want to go back to this interesting thing you said about private citizens so i'm just Adele, an average Joe, um, maybe one day I'll be super popular for positive reasons, right? Uh, And then there's something written about me, and you're saying that I have an easier time proving fault because the standard is lower to negligence, not gross negligence, right? Right, right. Interesting. That almost imbues a duty on journalists to be more careful when they write about just normal citizens, right? Definitely. And reporters know this, or they should, that a a private citizen does not, in the words of the court, thrust themselves into the limelight, um, seeking to affect change on a, an important issue of our time, the way the Fox um, company, I would argue, did, and public officials and public figures. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the landmark Sullivan case that Dr. Edmondson mentioned, uh, and it changed defamation law. We'll be right back. From Fox News, which is categorized as news media, let's go to a different type of media, the Walt Disney Company, a mass media and entertainment conglomerate. This week, Disney filed a suit against Governor DeSantis. In an article titled Man vs. Mouse, the New York Times described Disney's self-governance arrangement in Florida 
as unusual. Last year, when this political and social skirmish started between Governor DeSantis and Disney, I spoke with Professor James Clark in Season 2, Episode 18, about exactly how unusual is Disney's special district status. Dr. Clark is a historian of Florida. He shared some really interesting insights into Walt Disney's vision for Disney World, including a nuclear power plant. He also told me that Governor DeSantis is the most powerful governor in the South since the Civil War, and he explained why. The link to my conversation with Dr. Clark is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Edmondson. Dr. Edmondson, historically, did the U.S. Supreme Court weigh in on libel and defamation laws? Up until 1964, this was a state matter, was not under the purview of the First Amendment, was not a free speech issue. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, So mostly states, which makes me think that it was a mixed bag of common law and state law, not much federal sort of case law or even statutes on this, statutes. That's right. I mean, there were criminal libel statutes that go way back, but those those have kind of um, gone on the way of the horse and buggy, thankfully. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so it became federal law and a First Amendment constitutional issue in 1964 um, with New York Times versus Sullivan. Well, let's get into that. This is a Supreme Court decision that extremely is important to the evolution of defamation law. And in fact, you've written a book about it, um, the title, which is Sullivan's Shadow, the Use and Abuse of Libel Law During the Long Civil Rights Struggle. Um, So let's talk about this big year, 1964, and your book and defamation law here. Glad to. Um, I've spent a lot of a lot of years thinking about Sullivan, and I also think <laughs> about um, what led up to Sullivan and the context of what was going on during the time, which is pretty similar to today. Um, when we think about um, the rise of the Me Too movement in modern time, um, but in the 1960s, um, this would have been you know the 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 building up of the civil rights movement. Yeah. And and a full-page ad was run in the New York Times that was entitled Heed Their Rising Voices, um, which was put together and paid for by a civil rights group based out of New York City. Repeat that again. Heed their rising. Heed their rising voices. Oh, okay. The, the voices, voices. That, that we needed to be heeding, um, according to this ad, were um, the civil rights activists who were marching, um, protesting, um, especially in the South and, and in this instance in Montgomery, Alabama, um, during uh, in, in 1964, um, and so uh, the the police, the, the top cop in Montgomery, Alabama, a guy named Lester Bruce Sullivan, um, did not see the New York Times advertisement that was soliciting for donations and support. Um, of the civil rights movement as it was um, gaining momentum, as well as to pay for legal bills um, for Martin Luther King Jr., who had been arrested um, multiple times um, in the state of Alabama. I'm I'm waiting for the defamation part here. I don't... Oh, right. Okay. No, so far everything sounds good, right? (laughs) Right. And so um, the New York Times used, put information in the ad 
that was factually incorrect. These were oh. minor errors. Things like King was a, the wrong number of times that King was arrested, um, that the civil rights protesters were singing this particular song when they were arrested, but actually it was this song. Um, that um, police on horseback um, were um, amassing and, and surrounding Alabama State University um, when actually maybe they were on horses just on one side of the university. There were some minor mistakes in the air, in the uh, in the ad. And under the law of the time, so if I may stop you for one moment, please. Yeah. So the phrase "heed their rising voices" are like in big print, and yes. somewhere lower, I'm just imagining this in the smaller print are these details, some of which are factually incorrect. That's right. right. Okay, I'm yeah. following. Go ahead, please. Yeah, and the ad was signed by prominent civil rights leaders um, and quite a few celebrities and so forth. And it, it made a big splash, as you might imagine. Yeah. Somebody showed it to Commissioner Sullivan down in Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> and he did file a $500,000 libel suit that was um, made its way through the Alabama courts and was upheld by the Alabama Supreme Court as a record judgment. And 500,000 uh, in 1964. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Of course, many millions today this would be. But at the time, um, there's some really interesting material in the then executive editor Turner Catledge's personal papers, um, which are in, at Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi. He mm -hmm. was banging out on his typewriter, just this call for help um, and just letting all of his um, colleagues at different newspapers around the country um, and just said, look, there's this amazing new weapon that's becoming quite successful. It's silencing coverage of the civil rights movement. It feels as though um, the very existence of the New York Times is going to be threatened, according to the executive editor of the day. So this was a big deal and very frightening. Oh, so the weapon being the lawsuit, the defamation lawsuit that went all yes. the way up to the Alabama Supreme Court and won $500,000. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this was an issue that was a state matter. So it was in state courts. The New York Times, as you might imagine, really wanted this, this case to be heard in New York, but that they were unsuccessful um, in the jurisdiction because there were you know, roughly 300 um copies of the New York Times um, sold in Alabama that <laughs> said, yes, you need to come down to Alabama to defend yourself. Wow. So it was really frightening. Um, my book is, is, does talk about Sullivan in this way, but I talk about scores of libel suits that were bubbling up where other public officials um, looked at the success of Lester Bruce Sullivan and and saw the New York Times being kept out of Alabama um, and was not covering the civil rights movement as a result of this case for years because that's of, a because, terrible thing, right? Um, you know, one of the most important issues of the day, um, the civil rights movement and the actions of our police as being brutal to civil rights protesters who were arguably exercising their First Amendment right to um, petition the government for redress of grievances, right? Let's go back to what you just said, and I said it's a terrible thing. You said the New York Times was being kept out of Alabama. Alabama. I mean, yeah. that was not stipulated in the judgment. They just had to pay 500000 They could still go there, but they were susceptible to being sued again. That's why you're saying they were being effectively kept out, not legally kept out, right? 
Absolutely. That's an important distinction. The lawyers for the New York Times advised the editors. Don't go there. Don't go there. You're going to get it. There's going to be another libel suit. And they were hit with several more while Sullivan was on appeal. And quite a few other major news outlets um, and other media companies, I detail roughly 35 or so other cases that were coming up through the trials, um, through the courts, um, but while Sullivan was on appeal to um, the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, then Sullivan goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. How long does this take? I mean, it, it, well, it gets there in 1964 or maybe some, maybe 1963, but how long does it take before he gets there? Right, so it's it's two more years before it gets there. So the ad ran in March of um, 1960, and it was March of 1964 when the decision came down, um, and it was an astonishing decision um, that that really was seismic in nature, um, that that brought libel law under the purview of the First Amendment and gave drastic freedoms um, to the press. Um, and Justice Brennan, of course, who wrote the majority uh, opinion for the court, um, said the press needs breathing room to report issues of um, such public importance with, with, without fear of being bogged down with these costly and devastating libel suits. And Brennan even said, and mistakes are going to be an inevitable in this robust debate um, that we that we have in a democracy. And so if a reporter makes a mistake by accident and something false gets out there, then they could be protected from a costly libel suit. If the plaintiff, who's a public official, L.B. Sullivan was a public official as, as the top cop in Montgomery, he had to prove that the New York Times ran this ad knowing there was information in it that was wrong, but they ran it anyway. And the New York Times won because L.B. Sullivan was unable to prove that the New York Times acted with actual malice, that they ran something knowingly false or that they should have known was false. You know, had the Supreme Court case came out the other way, it almost would have been like a gag rule of some sort for journalism. Sure. It it, it showed it, it would be, and I know how devastating it is as a journalist to make an error, but we are human beings and, and there there is a such thing as human error. But this case opened up um, a, a whole new era um, in our democracy. It, it brought forth the brave reporting on Watergate on the Vietnam War and and what was going on with the Pentagon Papers case, um, which another well-known case relating to prior restraint, um, which we can do on another episode, Adele, if you want. Um, (laughs) Sure, look forward to it. Uh, Dr. Edmondson, I want to make sure I understand a phrase that you used. You said, the Supreme Court decision gave drastic freedom to journalism, to reporting. I want to understand the evolution of journalism before and after this. Was the Sullivan suit, its initial success at the state level, um, was this an aberration in journalism? Was 
journalism more circumspect before Sullivan and all of a sudden became more liberated? Why do you say drastic freedom? I'm, I'm trying to understand why you use that mm-hmm. word. And that's an important question, especially now. Um, not to give too much away about what's coming, but there have been some pretty serious discussions about rolling back Sullivan and making it easier to win a libel suit. And oh. so, yeah, so that's that's something that's quite concerning that at least two U.S. Supreme Court justices have indicated they are interested in revisiting. This um, Supreme Court? This Supreme Court, oh, yes. Oh, boy. Um, and, and, and there is support in, in some pretty prominent places. Um, so, so we, we in the, um, the first amendment scholarship world are are quite concerned. And that's why we were so closely watching Dominion um, case and the others that are coming. Um, it freed the press up that Sullivan did, um, again, to make an innocent mistake because we are all human beings and so um, the, the notion and the reasoning behind that, according to Justice Brennan's decision was, okay, let's say we get something wrong, heaven forbid, in our news pages and we broadcast. We can run a correction. We can correct the record. And even more notably, a public official or a noted company can call a press conference and correct the record. Yeah. And say, this was a mistake. And and this is why. And and we'll have, you know, the answer according to the court in a different case it, to bad speech is more speech. Let's co- have a conversation about how this might have been an error. And so journalists should be quick to correct their errors. And they should be so careful. Even opinion writers, not our, our opinion broadcasters um, and, and on-air personalities like the ones we've discussed about um, at Fox. Um, but the notion that someone makes an inadvertent mistake um, is, is, has been baked into our democracy now for the past 60 years, um, almost 60 years since Sullivan um, you know, came on the scene. And and there have been um, Sullivan's progeny. The cases that came after um, have have reaffirmed Sullivan um, multiple times um, and extended that actual malice requirement um, that that the plaintiff must prove that journalists acted in this reckless way with knowledge of falsity. Um, that has been affirmed many times, quite a few times since. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. With respect to correcting past mistakes, uh, had Fox News, I mean, this sounds silly to even say it, but had they come and corrected this, this, this suit was not would not even be here. And by the way, I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. They have a very prominent correction and amplification section. Both journals do. And I was thinking about that as you were sharing this with me. Um, and, and just, and I don't know if this is a question or a comment. I just thought I want to share this with you. Several days ago, I emailed you a copy of Mr. Barr's uh, opinion piece, and I love opinion pieces in both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, whether or not I agree or disagree with them. But based on what you said, those opinion pieces could be problematic for the writers if they're fast and loose with the facts that they're using in those opinion pieces, right? Yes. I see. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of reporting and journalism that goes into an opinion piece. 
I have never been an opinion writer. I have always been a reporter and have been careful to keep my opinions out of my reporting. But people love opinion broadcasts now. In this era of 24-7 cable channels, I mean, we know how polarized our, our cable media is. And so, so with that, there's definitely more room Um, I think for errors to be made when you've got more space to fill 24 seven, um, you know, for just from a journalistic standpoint, um, and, and maybe you are catering to a particular audience, um, who you're trying to keep with you. You don't want them to flee. You want to tell them what they want to hear. Maybe it's not so much about journalism. Precisely. (laughs) And we should never forget that journalist is not does not equal media. Media could be social media. It could be any kind of media. Journalist is is a part of the media media ecosystem, but but we really should not use those two terms synonymously. Yeah, I don't know who it was. I think it was Ted Turner uh, at one point in the early years of CNN uh, that he stressed this is entertainment news. It's not just news. And we'll be back after a short break to talk about defamation lawsuits, their impacts on journalism, and their difficulty. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Edmondson, we spent the last two segments talking about media and the press and journalism. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about social media. I mean, many of us, millions and millions of us get our news on social media. So is there anything you'd like to explain and and sort of expound about all these defamation rules and everything else when it comes to social media? Sure. Well, what are the major arguments um, the, that advocates make in rolling back Sullivan and taking away some of these freedoms that we've had for 60 years is that the ecosystem in the 1960s was obviously so different. Um, course, it, yeah. You, know, you had the big three, ABC, CBS, NBC, and newspapers and you know magazines, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the television was really just coming on the scene at this time. Now look where we are. With satellite and cable, 24-7 news. <laughs> Thanks, Ted Turner, 1980, when he started CNN, changed everything. But with social media, to your point, um, you know, we, we, we don't have media literacy in our schools. We honestly need media literacy in the seventh grade, like when we used to take civics. I'm showing my age here. Um, <laughs> but people will, will scroll on their Twitter feed or, or whatever and they'll look at headlines and they don't know and realize that they should think so critically about their media sources. And you'll say, well, where do you get your news? And somebody might say, well, Twitter. And I'm like, well, are you following the Associated Press, Reuters, ABC? Or you know, are you, are, what are you looking at? 
are you looking at the headline? Because as a, as a trained journalist and now a journalism professor, first thing I look at is the source, right? And people don't really know to think as critically. It's on the internet. It must be true, right? Which which we could have a whole other episode on the proliferation of uh, proliferation of um, conspiracy theories, right? So the argument that um, this false and defamatory speech can go far and wide and not be corrected um, is is not without merit. Certainly, that the ecosystem. Interesting. So it actually amplifies that initial act of defamation, that initial incident. Right, right. And as a print person, as a writer, when something is broadcast and it's incorrect, and then, you know, days later, somebody comes back and they correct it or they don't um, on their on their television station, that that false information can get out there and be repeated again and again and again. And so even though we do have a different media ecosystem, to me, the answer is not rolling back Sullivan and taking away our press freedoms. It's more about that media media literacy piece um, that I mentioned, um, where it would be just so doable, I think, um, to put um, some sort of curriculum into our um, public education system that just says, you know, this is how you can get the news and the information you need. And and we have to be an informed citizenry in a functioning democracy. And right now, our guardrails are pretty shaky. Um, a couple of comments, Dr. Edmondson. First of all, I have to disagree with you that it's not doable at all. I mean, look at Florida. We can't even agree on basic curriculum, let alone put something about journalism. Um, That's true. Uh, I mean, I love what you're saying, but I mean, Optimist. I, could, yeah. I, I could see um, counties and cities sitting and debating this. A whole course about media literacy is it'll start a revolution. Uh, and, oh. anyway, so that's my first comment. The second <laughs> comment. So. Could it be a case that, you know, let's say you're a newspaper, you're found liable for defamation as a newspaper, and but all of a sudden the damages part for that are in the billions and billions because it's been reprinted in social media. You see what I mean? The eyes that have seen this are not limited to the eyes that have read your newspaper, let's say, uh, as online subscribers or, you know, physical readers of the paper. It's now everybody that wouldn't even read your paper, but now they're seeing it. Is is that a thing? Oh yeah. It, it, oh it's boy. A, it's a major problem. Um, and one of the big things I always advocate is correct, correct, correct. Um, and so if you make a mistake, make sure you correct it prominently on your website. Make sure you repeat that we made an error in our broadcast so that people can can see that that record is corrected. Because, I mean, you know, to err is human, right? Yeah. To correct it is journalism. And everything else perhaps is media, but it's not journalism. That was profound. I may actually use that to <laughs> err is human to correct is journalism. Let's go <laughs> back to the Fox News uh, yeah. uh, lawsuit. Do defamation and libel suits have a negative impact on media and the press or do you think i'm asking this question in the context of also fox news or do you think that they keep the media and the press 
closer to the truth. You see, it can cut both ways. Mm -hmm. I think that the fear of a libel suit, of course, is is very real for journalists. Um, and so to see a suit this big, this um, impactful, when you think about, was it the big steal or the big lie, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It It is a chance for us to for people like me, um, to talk to, to explain why journalists and journalistic norms are the way they are. That when you go to journalism school, you have an entire class on ethics and it's baked into the entire curriculum. You have an entire class on First Amendment law and it's baked into the rest of the curriculum. And so, you know, if you behave ethically, you're going to be okay legally. That's what we tell our journalism students, the next generation of truth tellers, I like to say. Um, but the problem is because anybody with a cell phone can step up to the mic, you know, we've got citizen journalists and we have people who just aren't trained in the field. And, you know, we don't have licenses in journalism, right? The way a realtor might or something like that we don't yeah. have licenses because we don't want one um, because who would be the decider who would decide who gets to be a journalist. So as you can see, that's it's such a good point. Yeah, because a license itself could could be sort of a gate to prevent people from becoming journalists. I'm sorry right. I interrupted you. I just found that very to be very fascinating. Um and and I think that um if we are transparent, and I think Fox has gotten more transparent um about its mission. Um it's it's the notion that it did start out with a fair and balanced um moniker as part of its pitch um, was, was I thought not accurate and I'm not the only one. And now that they are, I would say out of the closet, so to speak, yeah. and they are so obviously um, a conservative media channel, then yeah. oh, we know what, what that is. And as long as you're transparent about that, um, you know, they are, they are chasing their viewers to ONA and to Newsmax and all of these other farther right wing um, media outlets um, that this, I think the coverage was just an act of desperation. And it's not, you know, obviously I think that's been proven now yeah. that we've seen the text messages and the emails from the executives and the on-air personalities um, saying the exact opposite, that they didn't even believe the stuff that was pretty much on a repeat loop um, for for months after um, the the presidential election. Yeah. Do you think it would have been better for journalism had Dominion's case proceeded to trial? Oh, gosh, you know, it has been the most closely watched case of a generation. I know. And, and so so when they settled, um, you know, we were just like, oh, you're kidding. You know, and so so it. It's almost like there was going to be a movie and then they turned it off just as we were starting <laughs> really, really into yeah, it. Yeah. You know, Especially I, since the trial judge had said that, look, you you did lie. That was already established. Yeah. Yeah. I was it was established that this was false. And and so, you know, I think I think Fox got lucky. Yeah. Well, we don't know what impact it would have had on journalism had well, had 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 Dominion won probably would have been good for journalists, right? Or no? Well, 
that is up for debate, certainly. And of, and of course, it most surely would have been appealed. And then you're going to have, you know, probably years in the making to a U.S. Supreme Court decision. And so at the moment, I'm aware of at least two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, who have indicated that that we need to revisit the Sullivan decision and make it easier for plaintiffs to win libel suits. Now, two is still a long way to five. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, a lot can happen between the time a case is at the trial level and I mean, uh, and by the time and, and by the time it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and look what happened to Roe versus Wade. I um, know. So, so you uh, had landmark decisions getting turned, we, we established law getting overturned. So it's not without the realm of possibility. So to answer the question that I asked you, would it have been better for journalism? There's actually a potential for catastrophe had it gone all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would have slackened um, Solomon to some extent. Interesting. Um, Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Edmondson as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Edmondson, you consider yourself a third-generation newspaper man. Please tell us what you mean by this. By the way, for our audience, I say newspaper man because I'm using your words. Yeah. Um, I am a media historian, a legal historian, and so um, I have a grandfather who was a newspaper publisher and then my uncle was a journalist oh cool okay family business yeah i know i did not know them um both of them did die before i knew them well I uh, i knew my uncle a little bit and so I want to have our photographs of them on my office wall and they're uh-huh. in these, you know, these wonderful black and whites and you can see the presses they're rolling and it's old school. They got the, you know, the, the scoop hat, you know, stop the presses. And yeah. so I, I just, they were the quintessential from what I can tell from their work, newspaper men. And so I, I just kind of thought it was funny and it was like, oh, I'm third generation newspaper man because I'm kind of an old school print person, um, you know, even though I love social media and spend a lot of time on it and love the law surrounding yeah. social media, I'm a newspaper man. So did you know about your uncles and grandpa's uh, profession as you were going and, 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 you know, picking your own? Yes. Yes. I think we were probably all bad in math, but we're great with words. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, in the prior segment, you mentioned truth tellers. You know, I, I'm keep on going over this, but I'll ask it again. So what is truth telling in the context of journalism? This this question may have been less material in the Walter Cronkite days when mm-hmm. we had one or three or five, like Peter Jennings sort of people that were authoritative. Now, what's the truth anyway? You know, you got Fox News, you got CNN, it's all over the place. 
Right. And for you to bring up Cronkite, I think is critical to this point. He was the most trusted man in America. Yeah. Trusted journalist, the most trusted man. Why do you, why do you make that distinction? Well, journalists really are struggling in this anti-media environment um, that comes from the highest levels of power, um, especially um, since the election of 2016. Yeah. When in January um, of the year before, um, you know, then candidate Trump promised to open up libel laws, quote, open up libel laws and make oh, it boy. much easier for people like him to win libel suits. And so there's so much media um, bashing now, and and I, I should say journalism bashing, that um, I think people just don't really know what we do. They don't understand the role of mm-hmm. a journalist in a functioning democracy. And so um, I hope I'm answering your question, but it's, it's just the idea that um, if we live in a world of alternative facts where we can't even agree on a basic set of facts, how in the world um, are we going to move forward? Is it the person with the with who can raise the most money now that the Citizens United case um, makes unlimited fundraising change possible? everything? Yeah, possible. So, so we are um, at a pivotal moment. I think we all know in our history, and journalism is at the center of that. Um, I do consider my job as you know educating the next generation of truth tellers. As I say, um, I had a student. Who was who graduated last year? Um, just a you know a really hardworking, wonderful reporter going out into the world, and, and an angry uncle who had consumed a great deal um, of of anti media news said on her graduation day, "Hmm, journalism degree, huh? Is that where they teach you how to lie?" And I just <laughs> thought, "Whoa." I love it. Yes, it's a noble profession. And so it's, it's, that's not easy to take, but I feel like I have to stand in front of my students and just get them ready for what's coming out there and, and let them know that, that as long as they do their job um, and do it the best they can, um, we're going to get through this anti media, um, anti journalist um, time. And I just hope that defamation law is not a casualty of this time. Let me uh, volley this hypothetical at you. Um, Let's say I see something, I witness something as a journalist, and I state a set of facts, all of which are true, but I omit other facts within that scenario. You can see this between CNN and Fox News and even sometimes the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. It's not that they're telling lies. It's just that they're focusing on one set of facts. Right. Um, is that truth telling? I think it's a lack of truth telling by omission. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, you have led workshops for journalists and journalism um, educators in Kenya, China, Kazakhstan, India, and Germany. These are the ones that I know of. Uh, what important lessons did you share with them about journalism in America? I talk a lot about the First Amendment and the fact that journalists have the free press clause. We have our very own clause in the First Amendment. And I also tell them that, um, especially in some of the areas where I've been, where the the press is emerging, um, for example, in in India as an emerging democracy, right? Um, I, I tell them that 
that tension between the government and the press is normal, natural, should be there, right? We're not the PR piece of the government, right? And that tension between the highest levels of power and even a local city council member, right? And the press um, has been there since the beginning of our time. George Washington even had issues with members of the press and would say, oh, that rascal. And (laughs) just get so angry at some of the things that came out. Um, And what was at the time a highly partisan press. Um, So it's... It's part of who we are and, 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 and what we're made of. And I think it's healthy. Um, and so if, if I can impart one thing to when I do teach overseas, which, which I have loved to do, is that, you know, hang in there and just keep asking the questions. Does the issue of defamation and libel come up in those conversations overseas? It has. It can. And in other countries that don't have our First Amendment, which is, you know, it's going to be pretty rare. You have things um, such as criminal libel and criminal libel where uh, has you have journalists being jailed um, for what they're saying. And, you know, we see this in in autocratic regimes around the world, um, but nobody has our libel law. I I will I will give you that. Our our it, it is also a model. Um, for libel law, I think around the world, but we, um, you know, we we see American media get hauled into foreign courts, and that can be highly problematic. Um, so really, you know, advocacy groups are are emerging um, in some of these countries where I've taught. Um, so they're learning about freedom of information laws um, and and related laws that can they can um, advocate for. Um, as part of of the fabric of these emerging democracies. And here's the flip side of that question. What important lessons can you share with us about journalism in those countries? You teach them about America, now teach us Americans about them. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, we have a really international um, program here at Ohio University where we bring in a lot of journalists from around the world and and to, to get graduate degrees. And so I, I tell them this as well as when I'm when I'm traveling. Um, and that is it is not only our job, it's our duty to to question our leaders. Um, and so with that you think about um, okay, if you question your leaders in some places, you're gonna get jailed. And yeah. so we're incredibly lucky, even even with, you know, the hot mess we feel like we're in right now um, with our alternative facts, um, et cetera. Um, we're pretty darn lucky. And, and I think it's important to point out, if I might pivot quickly here, um, that there are pending libel suits uh, um, against um, Fox, as well as other news outlets relating to um, the big lie. Yeah. And yeah. so there's going to be quite a bit more action and the, the voting uh, machine company, Smartmatic is going to pick up where Dominion left off. Yeah. And they may decide not to settle. Indeed. Let me go back to the question that I asked you about journalism outside the U S and any, any, any lessons that it may hold for us. Do you think our journalists are tough enough on our leaders. And 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 I ask this question when I think of journalists 
in the UK. You know, you, you see a journalist, you know, talking to former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and you're like, wow, she or he is really aggressive. I can't see that happening in the US. Do you think there are other democracies that are perhaps more advanced in this aspect than we are? We tend to not be as polite, I think, as we used to be. There has been some boorish behavior. I always cringe when I um, see the behavior of the big pack of journalists, or you know, I use that term, term loosely, but when they yell questions yeah. and, and behave in a way um, that I just would not behave in. Um, and so, so that is concerning that we are so uncivil. And that cuts across, you know, not only the way our politics are now, um, but yeah, the, the the British press, they are they are something um, with with the with some of their behavior, and um, I think the the American press is getting a little bit more like that, which I <laughs> don't really love. <laughs> so you don't think that's a good thing? That's not that's not being a little bit harder on politicians. That's just being uncivil. That's what you're suggesting. Yes, I think we can we can be civil and still ask the tough questions. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, between po two politicians, surely they can disagree without being so disagreeable. Yeah. Dr. Edmondson, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Adele. It was an honor to be here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>